It's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own country, among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He also said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake the dust from dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be, no more, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and, and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Let's pray before we unpack it together. Lord God, as we dive into your word now, we pray that your spirit would work incredible things in us, that we might have understanding of those things that are hidden to human eyes apart from your spirit's work. Grant us wisdom, the ability to discern these things that Jesus did and says here, that we might grow in our knowledge and grace in him. Us is in Christ's name. Amen. I'm offended. I am offended. How often do we see that sentiment show itself in workplaces, in TV, as part of advertisement, uh, campaigns that different companies will run, or just part of normal everyday conversation? I'm offended. I am offended that you would say that. I am offended that you would think that. I'm offended that you would have an opinion on that. I'm offended that you would wear that. I'm offended that you did that. I am offended seems to dominate so many things in the world today. Now, offence is something that we don't want to give. But To keep saying, I am offended in this word offence is often a very, very misused word. For someone to actually be offended, you have to first commit an offence. You have to actually do something wrong for somebody to be offended. If you find yourself feeling upset but have no factual basis to be offended... Not because someone's actually done something wrong, because we feel like we didn't like what they did, we're going to have to take stock of certain areas of our lives and examine where we're at. We live in a time and age where offence based on feelings dominates. Perhaps we talk to somebody 
And they've listened to every single word that we've said. But they disagree. And we say, I'm offended, you didn't listen to me. They listened, they just didn't agree. I feel underrepresented, therefore I'm offended. Perhaps the underrepresentation is our representative didn't do things exactly the way we would have liked for them to do it. There hasn't actually been offence caused. Again, these sorts of things pop up over and over and over and it is very easy for that attitude to rub off on us as Christians as well. We can adopt an I'm offended attitude at home. Maybe we're planning for a holiday and rather than have a day of doing absolutely nothing, somebody says, why don't we go out for dinner? No, I don't want to do anything. I'm offended that you would change my plan for the holiday. Maybe at work, we present an idea to streamline our company's running and to increase the profit, and that idea is rejected because the, the tired, perhaps tired but trusted and proven method is adopted. But we might get offended by that. Maybe we're putting up a new fence and the neighbour wants to go with a cheap option rather than the option we'd prefer. It might be a little bit more. And we get offended. Why don't they want to fork out a few more dollars for the fence? They're making my life difficult. I'm offended. Now, I don't agree with everything that he says, but Ben Shapiro in America, if you might need to play him at half speed, he talks very fast. He, uh, he's brought back to, to uh, more mainstream thought the idea that facts don't care about feelings. Now, as Christians, we don't bludgeon people with the truth. But whether you like something or not doesn't change the truth of what has been said. Now, it is not how the world works, despite that being the way the vocal part of the world would like us to act, becoming a prominent attitude. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because if you look at chapter 6, verse 4 that we just read, they were offended at him. That is, the people in the synagogue, on the day when Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath, they were offended at Jesus. The crowd at the synagogue that day didn't find themselves seeing flaws in what Jesus said. They didn't find themselves being able to prove with the prophets and the Old Testament writings and the Torah that what Jesus said wasn't quite right. They didn't say, well, your exposition of Scripture isn't quite right because prophet X, Y, or Z said this, which leads us to a different understanding. No, they were offended, and we're going to see why in a minute. So what we read here today follows on from where we were last week, and it's also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13. Now, Jesus went from the area where they were at last week, where he had an incredible encounter where he, he resurrected Jairus' daughter and he healed that woman who had the, the blood flow for 12 years. Amazing things that he'd done. So he left that area and, and went back to the area where he had grown up, which is where Mary and Joseph had returned to after Egypt, which had fled to when Jesus was an infant. He's back home. And, and the Sabbath day rolls around. And as the Jews did, they went to the synagogue to worship the Lord God Almighty. Now, perhaps wondering, why is Jesus teaching here? Don't they have somebody who should be doing that normally? Because if a visiting pastor rocks up here, he doesn't just automatically jump in the pulpit on Sunday because he's here. I, I still hop in the pulpit most weeks unless we invite him. Well, it was common at the time for an itinerant or a travelling teacher 
to be able to speak at the synagogue when the people met on the Sabbath. And that's why we see Jesus' teaching in verse 2. It's not an impromptu, way out of order, taking over the stage sort of thing. This is right and proper. It's good, orderly conduct. It's good, orderly conduct, and it doesn't get the response that we would necessarily expect. Last week we saw popularity for Jesus. This week we see opposition. It's this pendulum that keeps happening through Mark's gospel. Now it ends up leaning more towards the opposition than the popularity. But the pendulum is still very much swinging at this point in Mark's gospel, of his, uh, his account of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus taught in the synagogue. And the people listened to what Jesus said. And the people who listened to what Jesus said, they were astounded by what Jesus said. And that led them to asking the series of questions we see. And these questions beginning in verse 2. Where did he get these things? Not a bad question to be asking. In fact, every time we come to worship God and you hear somebody speaking, you say, where did he get that from? If it's aligns with scriptures from God if not throw it away have nothing to do with it it's a good question but it's a question not just of inquisitiveness it's a it's a question of amazement wow this is amazing where did he get this from the answer of course is God as we keep reading we do sadly see the crowd doesn't quite get to that answer which is amazing because the next thing they do after saying where did he get this from Look at the wisdom. Look at the mighty things that he does. They acknowledge how good the things that Jesus is saying and doing are. They recognize the mighty wonders that his hands performed. Perhaps you're reading this sequence of questions going, this is looking good. And then it stops. That stuff dries up really, really quickly. And it's almost as if we get the statue of, hold your horses, this guy's just a carpenter. This guy's just a carpenter who grew up here in Galilee. And as we read in other Gospels later on, what good ever came out of Galilee? This is not an educated man. This is a carpenter. It's not a statement that is a simple recognition of what Jesus had previously done beginning his ministry. This is a statement of he's a carpenter. They pretty much every commentator agrees is a form of slander. They're moving from astonishment to sledging him. It's a scary swing that takes place in the crowd. We know this guy. We know his mother. Perhaps even that was a crack at Jesus and his birth, his conception. I'm sure many people would have heard the story that Mary told of a virgin birth. Maybe when they say, we know his mother, there's a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing going on. We all know the story she told and we put up with. Do we really want to listen to this guy? We know his brothers. We know his brothers by name. We haven't just seen them around town. We know his brothers. And his sisters are right here with us too. 
Astonishment turned to rejection. Now, we're not told what Jesus actually said here. We're not sure what he taught, but given that Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was at hand and the people were to repent and believe, we can assume that it was exactly that type of message. The words themselves we don't know, but the message that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, is what he taught. And that is a message that hurts. It is a truth that hurts the unconverted heart. Feeling hurt by the need to repent does not change the truth that every human heart has a great need to repent of sin before God. The truth hurts. And Jesus didn't deliver this message with stumbling words. He taught with authority. We've seen that over and over again. He would have hit the nail on the head. And that nail would have been going into their hearts and they don't like it. Seems the crowd saying, we don't like it, we can't disprove of it, but don't you dare tell me to repent. I'm not the problem here, you're the problem because of how I feel. I am offended, we are offended. And this is seen to, seems to be where they land. The truth has been spoken. There is nothing that actually meets the definition of the word offense given here but being offended is the easy out and it's not just the easy out today this has been a long-standing problem of the human heart jesus tells them that a prophet has no honor in his own town and arguably this has never been more true you look at the prophets in the old testament who were treated horrendously and shamefully they would attest to this as well. The prophets have no honour among their family, among their relatives or in their hometown. These people despise Jesus. And verse 5 is interesting, given what happens surrounding verse 5 and what follows on from that. pausing so you can have a look at it he could do no mighty works there except laying his hands on a few people and healing a few people now what do we think are the mighty works of jesus healing casting out demons calming storms resurrecting children back to life these are the things we might consider the mighty works of Jesus. Jesus does some of those there. He heals the, some of the people there. But even then, Mark tells us that he could do no mighty works there. Why? Because the crowds had closed their hearts to Jesus' teaching. That was the greatest, mightiest work he was doing until he went to the cross. Crowds close their hearts to, yes, a painful message to hear that we must repent of sin, but a message of hope, eternal life, a place as citizens of God's kingdom, which is about to be ushered in. They say, no, we don't want it. 
verse 6 shows us that where earlier on the crowds had been astonished, now Jesus is astonished. He marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Important to note that last word he did, he was teaching. That mighty work revealing the truth of God to our hearts. Jesus didn't stay there anymore. We're going to see him tell the apostles to shake the dust from under their feet if people reject him and to move on. We see the apostle Paul do likewise in one place. He shook the dust off his feet when the house wouldn't accept him, shook the dust from his sandals and went next door where they actually accepted what he had to teach them. The rejection of Jesus we see here is a sad and it's a terrible thing. We should ask whether not just our offence when we hear of our sin or so-called offence, a feeling offended when we hear of our sin has led to us rejecting some of Jesus' teachings ourselves. Another part of it seems to be the familiarity that the crowds have with Jesus and his family. Have we become so familiar with the overarching stories of the Bible that they've just lost their wonder and their awesome and their brilliance to us? I know it's a cheesy saying in some ways, but familiarity does breed contempt. Not all the time, of course, but it can. They knew Jesus, the crowd here, or they thought they did. In reality, their judgment of his teaching and the the resultant offence was not based on his teaching alone, but on malformed opinions misinformed, misconstructed opinions. And we need to be very careful to make sure that we don't do the exact same thing. When we, some, some of us, we've grown up in churches and we need to make sure we don't do that. Kids, teenagers, all of us need to make sure that we don't just think it's the same old thing every week. It's God's amazing, life-changing word. It will challenge us. It will call us to repent. And the Spirit works in us to that end. And don't let offence, so-called offence, stand between you and eternal life, which is exactly what the people at the synagogue let happen. I love the response of Jesus. He didn't stop. And said, verse 6, he went around in a circuit to different villages teaching. A people saying no to Jesus, as we saw last week, is no obstacle for him. Even death isn't an obstacle for Jesus. We saw that last week as well. He keeps on going. He keeps doing his thing. The thing that the, the Father had sent him to do. And while he had called the apostles, the apostles a few chapters earlier, and he had given them the task of teaching of healing, the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, he releases the apostles now two by two. They are given authority to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. 
And it seems to be they're released now because they've been with Jesus long enough to learn an awful lot from him. They're armed with enough knowledge to go and teach. And God has granted them the ability to heal and cast out demons. So Jesus sends them out. He sends them out two by two. He sends them out with the sandals on their feet, one tunic, not two. Maybe some of them were thinking, yeah, just wear the clothes on your back. I'll wear two shirts then. Just, just one tunic. One tunic. It's all you get. Don't have any coins. Go. And that's all they needed to share the gospel. Now, if God blesses us with more than that, whether that be facilities as churches or those sorts of things, we should use them for his good, for his glory. We should maintain them accordingly. But there was no competition between the apostles as to who had the better brand sandals, whose staff was going to last longer, whose tunic was going to last better. None of that here. They had the word. And the word going out is where the emphasis lies. These guys armed with teaching, the ability to teach, and God's power to do some very cool things, and with very little else, they went out. They were to stay in a house until they moved on. But if they were to face rejection as Jesus did, and as I said, we see Paul face the same thing, we will face the same thing at times when we try to share the good news of Jesus. When they face rejection, they were to shake the dust from their sandals and move on. But it's not just to move on and forget about those people. We see the serious nature of rejection of the gospel, of rejection of God. It would be worse for those cities than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we know from the Old Testament the terrible, the fair but terrible judgment that was poured out on those cities of fire and brimstone raining down upon them. But it will be even worse for people who reject the message of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Hebrews chapter 10, which we read before, particularly verses 28 and 29, we see first in verse 28 how terrible it was for the people in the Old Testament to reject the law of Moses, to disregard it, to abandon it, to live in ways that were not the ways that God had commanded. And these were people who had heard the law. This was for people who were Jewish. They knew the law. For those who heard the law of Moses and rejected it, they would die without mercy. We must always have the mercy of God to have hope of life. But to reject the law of Moses was to die without mercy, without any hope of eternal salvation, to be eternally damned. Their souls were not saved. But then the author of Hebrews goes even further in verse 29 to say it will be even 
worse for anyone who tramples underfoot Jesus Christ. Also brings to mind the new covenant and to mistreat the blood of the new covenant. So just hearing about Jesus, it's, it's not enough. There is always a response to what we hear. I did a um, Christian ethics course at Queensland Theological College a few years ago, one that uh, Peter's just finishing up at the moment. I'm sure Peter heard this too, but in ethics, it's about good decision-making. Everything we do involves some level of ethical framework. Okay, surely not. Even the cereal we eat, even the cereal we eat we've made some sort of ethical standard uh, judgment call to decide that. Even if you don't eat cereal, still everything, you've made a, made a decision. Hearing about Jesus is not enough. There must be faith and there must be continued belief. Nothing else matters. Now, what the apostles are called to do here, this was a big thing. But they go. They went out. They were sent, which is exactly what an apostle is, one who is sent. And in the Christian context, one sent directly by God, which is why since Paul there are no more apostles. But these guys did exactly what their name was to do. They were sent. They went out. This commission is big. It is scary. The the synagogue in Jesus' own town has just turned against him. It's not the popularity after just having resurrected Jairus' daughters, the background for these guys immediately going out. It's in the face of rejection they go out and they go out with the good news. It's a really big job for these guys, but they go with their staff, their sandal, their, their sandals, their one tunic each. They went, they healed, they cast out demons, and they preached about the need for repentance from sin. Now, maybe that looked like a hopeless task. They probably faced all sorts of rejection. We don't know how many times they had to shake the dust from underneath their sandals and move on. But presumably many times. But the good news went out. We don't like rejection do we we don't like being shut down we don't like being told to stop talking certainly not about those things that we are most passionate about as Christians what could we be more passionate about than God there is a great commission for all of God's people It's a hard commission. We don't like rejection. We don't like seeing people hurting. We have a truth that will hurt. A truth that there is a great need for repentance from sin. It will be taken as offensive by some people, but it is a message of life and hope and forgiveness. Repentance is painful. But when we repent, because of what Jesus would go on to do, because of where he went to at the cross, we have 
forgiveness. We have reconciliation. We have life with God. And we know that joy. So yes, we are part of a great commission that is hard, that is difficult. It's hard to find the right word sometimes. It's hard to find the opening sometimes to share the gospel. But we need to persevere. Maybe we don't feel like we've been well enough equipped, but we have God's word and that is enough. So go. Go make disciples that others might enjoy the joy that we know. And no matter how much we hurt in sharing it, we have life, we have forgiveness, we have the fullness of joy of knowing that our sins have been forgiven and we should live that way. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Christ did, the amazing things he taught. And we thank you for what we can learn, even those perhaps disappointing things we read about the crowd's response in the synagogue. We pray, O oh God, that you would keep us from such knee-jerk reactions of our feelings getting hurt. Therefore, we, we throw out things that challenge us. Help us, O oh God, to submit ourselves to your word, even those parts that hurt, that we might be refined purified and shaped more and more like Jesus. And help us, O oh God, to take your word to those who need to hear it. May the light of your word, of your gospel, shine out through us. And we ask this in